Amen. All right. Well, we're there in Hebrews chapter number 6. And of course, on Wednesday nights, we've been going through a study in the book of Hebrews, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And tonight, we find ourselves in this infamous uh, portion of Scripture, Hebrews chapter number 6. And of course, uh, Hebrews 6, for those of you that are not aware, is a very uh, controversial passage. Not controversial in, in the sense, maybe how you would normally think of it, but controversial in the sense that there's a lot of arguments uh, as to what Hebrews 6 is talking about. It's a cryptic passage. It's a misunderstood passage. It's definitely a difficult passage, and it's not. that's not just me or preacher saying that. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us before he gets into Hebrews 6 that he's going to be dealing with some difficult things, things that are hard to understand. And many people have many different uh, views regarding Hebrews chapter number 6, and we're going to look at this tonight. And But before we do that, let me just kind of give you just some introductory statements. Uh, first of all, let me say this. There's lots of different beliefs that people have about Hebrews 6, uh, but let me just quickly go over a few of just the more mainstream or the ones that we care would care about the, the most. One, it, which is very popular, and, and it's very wrong, and one belief is that Hebrews 6 is teaching that you can lose your salvation. And I am, uh, of course, we are against that. We don't believe that. The Bible doesn't teach that. I'm not going to spend much of any time debunking that uh, because that should be obvious. And, and uh, I've, we've preached lots of sermons on eternal security, and, and that sh- shouldn't be something that, that you're struggling with, and I hope it's not. And if you are, please talk to us so we can get you saved, <laughs> um, so we can t- explain it to you. Um, but even within the new IFB, there's a lot of different beliefs about uh, Hebrews chapter 6. And, and some believe that this passage uh, is referring to and talking about Christians, and it's simply referring to the blessings and cursings on a believer. Others believe that this uh, is a teaching, that this teaching uh, has to do with the reprobate doctrine, that Hebrews 6 is about the reprobate doctrine. And, and like I said, just by way of introduction, let me just up front say this is a difficult passage of Scripture. Uh, and, and because of it, I want to give it a lot of time. In fact, you, you may have not noticed, but I, I kind of rushed the beginning of the service. We sing a few less stanzas and uh, had skipped the prayer time uh, to give myself a little extra time to deal with this passage because I do want to be thorough with it. And it is a difficult uh, uh, passage. It's um, cryptic. It's obscure. Uh, the wording can be difficult. It's ambiguous. Uh, and for this reason, there's, a lot, there's lots of different interpretations um, about the passage. And I just want to just right up front say, you know, I have friends within the new IFB, pastor friends who I love and I respect, and they may take different positions than the one that I, that, that I hold, and, and that's okay. I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with anybody having a different position on this, even within our church, as long as you're not teaching heresy or believing heresy, as long as you're not teaching uh, that you can lose your salvation, which none of our friends are teaching that, uh, then that doesn't bother me. Uh, but obviously, I'm going to teach you and I'm going to show you what I believe the Bible is teaching about this passage. Uh, since there are so many different positions on this passage, I really spent a lot of time debating, kind of going back and forth, um, not on what I believe about it, but how to approach it, how to teach it to you, how to outline it, uh, because I felt like Maybe I had to answer all these questions, but to be honest with you, ultimately I decided not to worry about explaining or debunking what others believe, and I just want to go through the passage with you and explain it to you and show you 
um, what the Bible is teaching here, and hopefully that makes sense. My job as a pastor is to take things that are complicated. My job as a teacher is to take things that are complicated and to make them simple, and that's um, what I'm going to attempt to do tonight. So just to give you uh, uh, the, the kind of headings in advance, we're going to look at this passage tonight from three different angles, and uh, you can write these down if you'd like. Um, obviously, I always encourage you to take notes, and on the back of your course of the week, there's a place for you to take notes. We're going to begin by looking at the context of Hebrews 6, and then we're going to look at the construct of Hebrews 6, and then we're going to finish with the concept of Hebrews 6. And for each one of these headings, I'm going to give you five statements, and I'll, I'll do the best that I can to be clear and to move as quickly as possible, but I want to make sure you understand these things. And we're, so we're going to begin here with the context and to really understand the context of uh, this passage, because I believe that context is key to understanding this passage. We have to start back in Hebrews chapter 5 to get the context. So I'd like you to just flip back to Hebrews chapter 5, if you would. And let me just say this about the context. I have already thoroughly preached through every verse leading up to where we are right now. Uh, so I'm going to give you context, and we're going to go through the context, but it's going to be a quick overview and review uh, because I've already thoroughly gone through. The reason that I didn't squeeze this sermon into last week's sermon, and I preached the whole sermon just out of verses 1 through 3 in Hebrews 6, was because I wanted to make sure that we understood the context leading into uh, really not just this passage, all passages, but uh, for tonight specifically this passage. So we've already dealt with it thoroughly. And if one point on context is not enough for you, then, you know, feel free to go back and listen to the however many 12 sermons I've already preached out of the book of Hebrews, um, because we've been dealing with this, path, this book in its context. And I, I want to just build the context back up and, and help you see it and, and remember what we've been looking at as we lead into Hebrews chapter 6 and specifically uh, verses 4 through 8. And I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1. And let me just, I'm not going to read all of these passages for you. I'm just going to remind you of several things. In Hebrews 5 and verse 1, the Bible says this, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Like, like I said, we've already preached through Hebrews 5. But let me just remind you that the writer of the book of Hebrews is teaching about the position of the high priest here in Hebrews chapter 5. In fact, in verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews 5, he's dealing with the position of the high priest. And if you remember the context of the entire book, the purpose of the book of Hebrews is to help the, the intended audience. We know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for all of us. But the intended audience is the first century Jewish believers, these individuals that had grown up in Judaism and had gone saved. And the purpose of the book of Hebrews is to help them understand how to transition out of the Old Testament into the New Testament and how the Old and the New Testament correlate together. And as a result, the writer of Hebrews has been going through the book of Hebrews and showing us how Jesus is better and specifically how Jesus is better than the Old Testament. We're learning about, we've learned about how Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Joshua. Jesus is better than Aaron. And here we're seeing that Jesus is a better uh, high priest. He's better than the Old Testament uh, covenant. And that's what he's talking about in verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews chapter 5. The writer of Hebrews has been teaching about the position of the high priest. And then in verses 5 through 10, he continues to talk about the high priest, but he specifically begins to talk about a, a specific high priest, and that is Melchizedek. Look at Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 10. 
And again, it begins in verse 5. I'm not going to read all of it, but right at the end of this little portion, notice what he says. He says, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we see that the writer of Hebrews in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 5 is writing about the position of a high priest. And then in verses 5 through 10, he begins to get into the subject of Melchizedek and Melchizedek as a high priest. Now, let me just stop here for a moment and say this. This is very important, and I need you to, to, to grasp this, because what we have in this passage in chapter 6, what we have is the writer of Hebrews, he's talking about Melchizedek. He's been talking about the high priest. He's now talking about Melchizedek specifically, and he is going to now take a break that will lead us through the end of chapter 5 and the vast majority of chapter 6, up until the last verse of chapter 6, and then he's going to get back to the subject of Melchizedek. The subject of Melchizedek as the high priest actually bookends both of these, uh, 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 on the front and on the end, this section uh, that is controversial regarding uh, Hebrews chapter 6. I want you to notice that because that is by design, and it is for a reason. And here's what you need to understand. The writer of Hebrews is talking about Melchizedek, and he actually just kind of takes a break and he goes on a little rabbit's trail that we call Hebrews chapter 6 and then comes back to Melchizedek in chapter 7 and he goes on the rabbit's trail for a reason within the context of Melchizedek. Look at verse 11. Here's where the rabbit's trail begins. He says, of whom? The word whom there is referring to Melchizedek. Remember, whom can always be replaced with him, of him. We have many things to say. He's talking about Melchizedek. In verse 10, he said, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have many things to say. He says, I've got lots of things that I want to say to you about Melchizedek. And then notice these words. He says, and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. So I want you to notice that the writer of Hebrews, we're looking at the context. The writer of Hebrews explains that there are some things about Melchizedek that he would like to teach them, of whom we have many things to say. But he says to them, these things are difficult. They are difficult to communicate. He says, hard to be uttered. This is why I say to you that this is a difficult passage. I didn't say that. The writer of Hebrews said that it is hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. He says, it's hard to communicate, and he says, you're also not ready or able to hear it. He says these are things that are hard to be uttered and they're made hard because of the fact that ye are dull of hearing. He said you are not ready to hear, you are not ready to, to receive what I need to show you. Are, you. are you following the context? Look at verse 12. For when, for the time, ye ought to be teachers. Now again, I've already preached through these verses, but I just want you to understand the context. The writer of Hebrews is not going to explain to them why they are not ready to hear these things that he wants to teach them. He says, I have things I want to say of whom we have many things to say about Melchizedek, but they're hard to be uttered and you're not ready to hear them. And he said, here's why you're not ready. For when the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. He says, the reason that you are not ready to hear what I have to teach you, he says, 
because, he says, for they, you are spiritually immature. He says, you're a babe and you are not ready for the strong meat of the word. Look at verse 14. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now here's what I want you to understand. And we already talked about this earlier in the book of Hebrews, but when the writer of Hebrews, who I believe to be the Apostle Paul, wrote the epistle of Hebrews, it was written as a, as a, as a letter. The, the chapter divisions and the verse divisions were added later for our benefit, and we're thankful for them and praise God for them. But I want you to understand that the writer of Hebrews did not get to the end of what we call verse 14 and said, all right, that's the end of chapter 5, and now I'm going to start chapter 6. This is all a continuous writing. He says, but strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, therefore... Now, the word therefore is connecting us back to Hebrews chapter 5. The word therefore means for that reason. And he's saying for that reason. For what reason? He said because the fact that, what's the context? I have some things I want to explain to you about Melchizedek. But you're not ready to hear him because they are honestly hard to be uttered. And you're also not ready because you are dull of hearing. You are uh, a babe in Christ for the time when you ought to be teachers. You have need that one teach you again, the first principles. You have need of milk and not strong meat. You're a babe in Christ. He says, because of all that, verse 1, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. He's saying, look, let's go on to perfection. The word perfection, again, already preached on it, means completion or maturity. He said, therefore, let's leave the principles, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection. He said, let's mature, let's grow, because I need you to grow, I need you to get off the milk and on the strong meat, because you're not ready to hear some things that I need you to understand. The writer of Hebrews explains that for the reason that the audience is immature spiritually, he needs them to go on unto perfection so that they can be ready to receive these difficult things. Notice there, verse 1, therefore. Now, now here's what I want you to understand. And if you're taking notes, let me just say this. That, that's the context. I want you to understand the context because the context we, we cannot arrest the, the, the text from the context. We need to make sure we understand what is being said and spoken about leading into the passage that we're going to look at. And those are five statements that I gave you regarding the context. I just want you to understand them. He's teaching them about the high priest. He specifically teaches them about Melchizedek as the high priest. And he then tells them there are some things I want you to know about Melchizedek, some things you need to understand about Melchizedek, but they're difficult to communicate. He says that, that they, they are hard to be uttered, and you're not able to receive them there because you're dull of hearing. He says you're dull of hearing because you're a spiritual babe, and I need you to go on to perfection so that you can understand these things. That's the context. Now let's look at the construct. What is this passage saying? And, and let me just say this, just for a minute. Let's forget anyone's interpretation of this passage. Any sermons you've heard in the past, anything you've heard me say in the past, just forget that for a minute, and let's just look at what the passage is simply saying in its context. 
Let's read the passage. I, I, I refer to this section as the construct because what I want us to do is to simply look at the words, look at the syntax, look at the sentences, look at the phrases, look at the structure, and let's just build and construct what it is that the writer of Hebrews is trying to say to that. We understand the context now. Hopefully, you were able to get caught up with that and understand that. Now, let's look at the construct of this passage. And there are five things that I need you to understand regarding the construct, regarding what is being said. And these are things that you may want to jot down. Number one, the group being spoken about in Hebrews 4, chapter 6, verses 4 through 6 or 4 through 8, is different than the group being spoken to in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. I hope you understood that. The writer of Hebrews is speaking to his intended audience. He's been speaking to them the entire time. He's speaking to first century Jewish believers. Notice that this is uh, highlighted in the pronouns that he uses. Notice Hebrews chapter 6, look at verse 1. Therefore, for that reason, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let, I want you to make note of this word, let us, see that word? Let us go on unto perfection. He identifies himself with them. He says, let us. In fact, if you don't mind writing in your Bible or underlining your Bible, I would encourage you to circle that word, us. He says, let us go on unto perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of, uh, of the doctrine of baptism and of the laying out of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. I preached through all of that thoroughly last week. Look at verse 3. And this will, notice this word, we do. If God permit, circle that word we. In verses 1 and verses 3, he uses these pronouns in which he identifies himself with these individuals. He says, let us go on unto perfection. Verse 3, and this will we do if God permit. But from verse 3 to verse 4, and verse 4 is where the controversial, cryptic, misunderstood passage begins. From verse 3 and verse 4, I want you to notice that there is a shift, there is a change in the pronouns. He goes from saying, let us go on to perfection, and this will we do, if God permit. And then he begins to talk about a different group. Look at verse 4. For it is impossible for us. Is that what he said? For it is impossible for those. Different pronouns who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if, notice these words, they, not us. Verse 1, he said, let us. Verse 3, he said, this will we do if, this, he says, this, uh, and this will we do if God permit. But now he's saying those. In verse 6, he says, if they, notice, circle that word, they, if they shall fall away, to renew, notice this word, them again, unto repentance, seeing, notice this word, they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. I just want you to notice, I'm not trying to tell you what is being said here or give you my thoughts or interpretation. I just want you to notice the construct and the grammar of the passage that it's clear that there is a shift in the pronouns. In verses 1, 2, and 3, he's talking about us and we. In verses 4, 5, and 6, he's talking about they, them, they, those. 
a different group. Look at verse 7. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them which, uh, by whom it is dressed, receive blessings from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. Don't worry, we're going to come back to all that here in a minute. I just want you to notice that there is yet again a shift in pronouns. Verse 9. But, beloved, we... So notice he says in verse 1, us. He says in verse 3, we. Then in verses 4, 5, and 6, he talks about a different group. He says they, those, them, they. And then in verse 9, he goes back to, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. So here's the first thing I want you to see when we look at this very difficult passage. And maybe this is, maybe will just serve as a, an example of how to study the Bible when you are studying the Bible for yourself. And it is this, that the group being spoken about in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, is different than the group being spoken to in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 3, and back again in verse 9. In verse 1, we said us. He said us. In verse 3, he said we. In verse 9, he said we are persuaded better things of you. But in verses 4 and 5 and 6, he says those and they and them and they. So the first thing I want you to notice is this. The group being spoken about in Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6, is different than the group being spoken of or being spoken to, excuse me, in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Then, here's another thing I want you to see. Just as we dissect this passage, before we start making applications, let's just look at the construct. I want you to notice that the group being spoken about in verses 4, 5, and 6 has lost their ability. The, the phrase used here is, it is impossible, has lost their ability to be renewed again unto repentance. Look at verse 4. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. The first word is this, for. For, meaning because. Here's what he's saying. We need to go on to perfection because. I want you to notice that that word connects these two groups. They are different and distinct groups. But there is something that connects them. There's a reason why he's bringing this up. He's not just randomly, you know, I haven't talked about the reprobates for a while. Let me just kind of bring that up for no reason. He's bringing this up for a reason. He's talking to them and he says, look, I need you to go on to perfection because I need you to understand some things about Melchizedek. And you're not ready to hear it yet, but here's what you need to understand. You need to know this because it is impossible. That's the context. It is impossible. Now, here's what I want you to get. And this is what makes this passage difficult. Is that what we have in verse 4 is these words. For it is impossible for. And right at the word for, starting with the word for, we have a list of descriptive prepositional phrases. If you remember learning how to dissect a diagram a sentence in high school, you might remember uh, about prepositional phrases. A prepositional phrase is a group of words that begins with a preposition and describes nouns, pronouns, adjectives, adverbs, and verbs. They describe and they modify the noun. Here's what you need to understand. The subject of the sentence never 
changes or is never changed by a prepositional phrase. And you need to also be aware of the fact that prepositional phrases can be inserted back-to-back. You can have back-to-back prepositional phrases. And a prepositional phrase is simply pointing back to the subject and describing the subject or modifying the subject. And what we have in verse 4, beginning with the second word for, for it is impossible for, that that second word for is a prepositional word, it's a preposition, that begins a list of prepositional phrases that are descriptive and that are explaining something, but they're not required to understand the subject. Look at what it says. For it is impossible, and here's where the prepositional phrases begin. For those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted of the, word, of the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. Here's what he's saying. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and for those who have tasted of the heavenly gift and for those who were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and for those who have tasted of the good word of God and for those who have tasted of the powers of the world to come. Do you understand? All of that is pointing us back, describing something. But here's the, the reason I bring this up is to say this. To understand the subject of the sentence You can ignore all that. Now, we're going to come back to it, and I'm going to talk about it. But for now, I want you to just ignore it just so you can understand the subject. Notice when we cross out the prepositional phrases. They're important. We're going to come back to them. But when we cross them out just to make sure we understand the subject, here's how the sentence reads. For it is impossible, verse 6, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance. Or you could read it this way, for it is impossible for those if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance. What the writer of Hebrews is telling us, though he added all these descriptions about who he's talking about, he's telling us that this group that's different than the first group, that it is impossible for them to be renewed again unto repentance. That's what he's saying. Now, when you look at the word repentance there in verse 6, let me just say this. The word repentance in the Bible, and we talked about this last week, so I should be able to deal with this quickly and not spend a lot of time on it. The word repentance in the Bible can be used in two different ways. It can be used about salvation, and it can be used about sanctification. Obviously, when the Bible is telling you to repent of your sins, that is not talking about salvation. That is for a believer. Christians need to be repenting of their sins every day. When it comes to salvation, their repentance is involved in the sense that we turn from dead works and have faith towards Christ, have faith towards God. We turn towards God. That's repentance for salvation. The question is, what is this repentance referring to? And that can be highly debated, but I'll just tell you my thoughts. My thought is that the word repentance there is referring to salvation. Now here's why. Look at verse 6. And if you disagree with me, that's okay. We can be friends. Hebrews 6, verse 6. If they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance. Now, how do we know what repentance he's talking about? Well, we can know based off the context. Notice the very next next phrase, which is by definition the context. The context of the word repentance here is this. Seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. This repentance is connected to the Lord Jesus Christ being crucified. What is that? Salvation. 
That's not repent of like trying to live a good life. What does that have to do with him being crucified and them crucifying to themselves the Son of God afresh? The cross has to do with salvation. Not only that, but if you go further in the chapter, and we're going to go through the whole thing uh, here tonight, but let me just skip down to verse number 9. I want you to notice that salvation is brought up within the context of this book. Hebrews 6, verse 9. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. Notice, he's, he brings up salvation in the context. Specifically, when he comes back to the original group, he says, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. He's contrasting them to the group being spoken of in verses 4, 5, and 6, and, uh, and 7, and 8. And he says, we're persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation. What is he telling us? You're saved. But this group, it's impossible if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance. And then he brings up the fact that, uh, that in order for that to happen, they would have to crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh. So... I believe the repentance there is a reference to salvation. And the group, is being, the group being spoken about has lost their ability. It is impossible to be renewed again into repentance. Number three, look at verse four. For it is impossible for those who were. Now here's our list of phrases that are descriptive. Who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted of the good word of God, and of the powers of the world to come. He tells us that this group, which is different than the group that he's talking to, that he's writing the book to, and that has lost their ability to be renewed unto repentance, he tells us that this group being spoken about, not spoken to, but spoken about, he tells us that they were once enlightened, they tasted of the heavenly gift, they were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and they tasted of the good word of God and of the powers of the world to come. Now, I'm going to come back to that. I'm going to come back to it later on in the sermon. Uh, we're just going to leave it there for now. But I do want you to notice that he did say that about that group. That group was once enlightened. That group tasted of the heavenly gift. That group was made partakers of the Holy Ghost. That group tasted of the good word of God and the powers of of the world to come. And then in verse 6, and we've already talked about it a little bit, he says this, if they shall fall away. Remember, the context is this, for it is impossible if they shall fall away to renew them again into repentance. And then he says, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. The group being spoken of, according to the writer of Hebrews, cannot be renewed again unto repentance because doing so would be like crucifying to themselves the Son of God afresh. Now again, if someone is saying, well, no, these are Christians and they, they're backslidden, well then, are you saying that they can't get right with God because they would have to crucify the Lord afresh? Because the Bible says that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness as many times as we need. That's the whole point of eternal security. So here he's saying this group, if they were to be renewed, it would be like crucifying to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him on an open shame. So let me just ask you a question. Keep your, keep your blazer in Hebrews chapter 6 and go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 if you would. If you go backwards, you'll go past the book of Hebrews, Philemon, Titus, 2 and 1 Timothy, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. You go backwards, Hebrews, Philemon, Titus, 1st, 2nd Timothy, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st Thessalonians. And let me just ask this question, because here, 
the writer of the book of Hebrews, who's writing to first century Jews who are believers, and he's explaining to them how to transition out of the Old Testament into the New Testament, and how to correlate the Old Testament into the New Testament, tells them, I need you to understand something about a group, not you, but another group, who it is impossible for them to be renewed. And he says, if they could be renewed, it would be like crucifying the Son of God afresh and putting him to an open shame. So let me just ask you one real quick Bible question. Who crucified the Lord Jesus Christ? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, many people say the Romans. The Romans were a tool used to crucify Christ. Obviously, they took part in it. But according to the Bible, who crucified the Lord Jesus Christ? 1 Thessalonians 2, look at verse 14. Notice what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians. He says, For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. He's talking to the church in Thessalonica, and he's saying, You have been persecuted like we have, like your own. Uh, 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 he says, For ye also have suffered like things of your own country. He said, you've been, you've been persecuted by your own countrymen like we have been by the Jews, even as they have of the Jews. Look at verse 15 who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men. Another list of prepositional phrases, by the way. <laughs> He's got quite a few things to say about the Jews. He says, they killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they please not God and are contrary to all men. So the Bible is clear that it is the Jews who killed Jesus. Go back to Hebrews chapter 6. Look at verse 7. Let's just review real quick. The group being spoken about being spoken about in, in Hebrews 6, verses 4 and 6, is different than the group being spoken to in Hebrews 6, verses 1 and 3. The group being spoken about has lost their ability. It is impossible for them to be renewed again unto repentance. And the group being spoken about was once enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift, was made partakers of the Holy Ghost, tasted of the good word of God, and of the powers of the world to come. The group being spoken about cannot be renewed again unto repentance because doing so would be like crucifying to themselves the Son of God afresh. And then number five, I'd like you to notice that the group being spoken of was rejected and they were rejected because they produced thorns and briars. Look at verse seven. Four. Now the word four here again is pointing us back to the context because... And what he's going to do in verses 7 and 8, he's going to give a little parable. He's going to give a little analogy. And he's hoping that this analogy helps them to understand what he's talking about. Now remember, there's two groups being spoken about here. The group being spoken to, verses 1 through 3, and the, word, the group being spoken about, verses 4 through 6 or 4 through 8. In verses 7 and 8, we again have two groups. Notice what it says, Hebrews 6 and verse 7. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it. What does that mean in our little parable here, in our little analogy? Here's what he's saying. The rain comes upon the earth. The opportunity for the earth to receive rain comes upon the whole world. It doesn't just rain in one section of the world. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and then he says, there's two different things that happen when the rain 
is brought unto the earth. One thing that happens, he says here in verse 7, and bringeth forth herbs meat, the word meat means suitable, for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessings from God. He says when the earth receives the rain, receives the water, and it bringeth forth, it produces herbs, then that, that group, receives blessings from God. But, verse 8, here's the contrast. Here's the compare and contrast. Here's the second group. But that which, notice this word, beareth. Beareth means produces. Beareth means this is the fruit. That which beareth thorns and briars. A briar is like a prickly shrub. Notice what he says. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. Now remember, and I want, you to, I want you to look down at this, I want you to remember these words, thorns and briars. Now, a lot of debate can be stated about these thorns and briars. And when people preach about Hebrews 6, oftentimes we like to find passages that talk about thorns and passages that talk about briars and passages that talk about these types of things. But I want you to notice that when he's talking to these first century Jews who grew up in Judaism but are believers now and are saved, and he says, let me tell you a little parable. A parable about the earth drinking in the rain and bringing forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed. And, but also... That which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned, to a first century, and maybe to you too, I don't know, but to a first century Jew who's saved but grew up in Judaism, that little phrase, thorns and briars, is going to stand out to them. Especially within the context of a story or a parable. You say, why? Well, let me show you. Go to Isaiah chapter 5, if you would. Isaiah chapter 5. If you open your Bible just right in the center, you're more than likely to fall in the book of Psalms. Right after Psalms, you have Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah. We talked about the context. What's the context? He's talking about the high priest and began to talk specifically about Melchizedek. But then he had to take a break from talking about Melchizedek and he had to go on a little rabbit trail because he said, I have a lot of things I want to say to you about Melchizedek, but they're hard to be uttered and you're not ready to hear him. You're dull of hearing. And the reason that you're not ready to hear him is because you're a babe in Christ and I need you to grow up and get on the strong meat. And he says, let us go unto perfection and this will we do. He said, I need you to grow because I need you to understand something about a different group, another group, not us and we, but them and they and, and those guys, but those guys are closely connected to you. And they're closely connected to your understanding about Melchizedek. But I don't think you're ready to hear it. So I'm going to explain it to you, and he says, let me use this little story. For the earth drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them, by whom it is dressed, receiving blessings from God, but... That which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. Go to Hebrews, uh, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 5. Uh, hopefully you're there. We talked about the context. We talked about the construct. Now let's talk about the concept. What's being taught here? What's the whole point? Hebrews chapter, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. 
By the way, let me just say this. Isaiah chapter 5, famous, well-known parable by the prophet Isaiah. In fact, it's so well-known that Jesus kind of teaches his own version of this parable in the Gospels. I'll show it to you. Isaiah 5, verse 1. Now will I sing unto my well-beloved a song of my beloved. This is the prophet Isaiah. He said, let me sing you a song. Let me tell you a little story. He said, now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. Make note of that word vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it. What, what is that? That's protection. And gathered out the stones thereof. What is that? That's preparation. And planted it with the choicest vine. What is that? That's provision. And built a tower in the midst of it. And also made a wine press therein. What is that? That's production. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes. What is that? That's reproduction. That's fruit. And it brought forth wild grapes. He, see, he, he, he had a vineyard and he fenced it. And he gathered out the stones thereof. He planted the choicest vine, the best vine, the best quality vines. Organic, right? He built a tower. He made a wine press. And he did all this. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes. He wanted it to bring forth grapes. The problem is it brought forth wild grapes. He didn't want wild grapes. Wild grapes were unusable. Wild grapes were sour, rotten, not, not something he could use. Look at verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you. Notice who he's talking to. The inhabitants of Jerusalem and the men of Judah. He's telling them, judge, Isaiah's telling them, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? said, what else could I have done? I fenced it. I gathered, stone, I gathered out the stones. I planted the choicest vine. I built a tower. I, I built a, 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 a wine press. He, he, he said, what else could I have done? What could, I, what could have been done more to my vineyard, verse 5, that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. He said, I wanted it to bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. Again, unusable. Verse 5. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will, notice these words, take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up. And break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste, it shall not be pruned, nor digged. But there shall come up, please don't miss it, I want you to see it, verse 6, briars and thorns. He said, what's going to come up to this vineyard? What are you doing to this vineyard? I'm rejecting it. He says, I'm going to take it away. I'm going to break down. I'm going to lay it to waste. And there's going to come up briars and thorns. Remember Hebrews 6, 8? But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected. And I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. You say, what is he talking about? Verse 7. Verse 7 is the uh, spiritual commentary to this little story. Verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The nation of Israel. It's about the Jews. 
And the men of Judah, his pleasant plant, and he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a crime. Go to Matthew chapter 21 if you wouldn't. You say, okay, what the concept of, of Hebrews, what is it about? Well, I want you to know that it's about the Jews. He says, I'm going to reject it because I gave it water and it wouldn't bear what I wanted. It bore, he says, it beareth thorns and briars and as a result it is rejected and nigh unto cursing whose end is to be destroyed. And Isaiah has a famous song, a famous parable about a vineyard, which is about the house of Israel, where he says, I'm going to reject the house of Israel because it's producing briars and thorns. Now this parable is kind of retold by the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Not exactly, but it's very similar. Matthew 21, look at verse 33. Notice what Jesus says. Matthew 21, verse uh, 33. This is Jesus speaking. Hear another parable. There was a certain householder, notice these words, which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about. Doesn't that sound familiar? And digged a wine press in it. Doesn't that sound familiar? And built a tower. Doesn't that sound familiar? And let it out to the husbandmen and went into a far country. Doesn't all that sound familiar? Like Isaiah 5? Now, I'm not going to go through this whole parable. I'm not going to take the time to do it. But let me just quickly explain what happens here, and you can read it in its context if you'd like. In this parable, the householder, which we meet in verse 33, sends his servants, which we meet in verse 34, to the husbandmen, which we met in verse 34, to receive the fruits of the vineyard. We see that in verse 34. The husbandmen, from verse 34, beat one in verse 35, killed another, in verse 35, and stoned another, in verse 35, and eventually the householder, from verse 33, sends his son, in verse 37, and they kill him too, in verse 38. That's the story. Look at verse 40. Here's the application. Matthew 21, 40. Did you get the story? He has a vineyard. He gave it to husbandmen. He wanted fruit. They, when, when it was time to get fruit, he sends a servant. He sends a servant. They beat one. They kill another. They stone another. Eventually, he sends his son. He says, they will reverence my son, but they kill him too. That's the story. Verse 40. When the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? They say unto him, he will miserably destroy those wicked men. And will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen. You know what we call that? We call that replacement. Replacement theology right here. He will let out those vi that vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits of their season. Look at verse 43. S same passage, same context. Just to be clear, Jesus talking to the Pharisees says, Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you. The nation of Israel, the Jews, you're going to be rejected and given to a nation. And we know that nation is a, gen a nation of Gentiles bringing forth the fruit thereof. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, Hebrews 6, 8. So what is Hebrews 6 about? Well, it's about the Jews. But it's not just about the Jews. 
Go, go to Matthew chapter 7. It's about the Jews, but let me just be clear, because I do believe this. Hebrews 6 is about the reprobates. You say, well, how do you figure? Well, remember Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 8? Do you remember verse 8? But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected. That which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. In Matthew chapter 7, we have a story that Jesus gives, and here's what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Notice verse 16. Ye shall know them by their fruits. It's funny to me that today liberal Christians like to quote that, and you shall know them by their fruits, and they don't look at the context. Context is key. It's about false prophets. He says, you shall know them by their fruits. And then notice what he says. Do men gather grapes? Like the vineyard in Isaiah 5, the vineyard in Matthew 21. Do men gather grapes of thorns? Here's what he's saying. Do thorns produce grapes? Or figs of thistles? Do thistles produce figs? Verse 17. Even so, he says, that's just an illustration. That's just a parable. Here's the application. Even so, or in the same way, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit. But a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. What's he saying? He's saying a false prophet cannot produce anything but thorns and briars. An evil tree cannot produce good fruit. And a good tree cannot produce evil fruit. Verse 19, every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Remember Hebrews 6, 8, whose end is to be burned? Wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. This is why I believe that Hebrews 6 is talking about reprobates. Because here's the thing. We can argue about what the phrase once enlightened means. We can argue about what the phrase tasted of the heavenly gift means or made partakers of the Holy Ghost means or tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the world. We can argue about what those phrases mean. But here's something we cannot argue about, that Hebrews 6 and verse 8 says that these individuals beareth thorns and briars. They produce thorns and briars. And Jesus said, a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. So therefore, these people are not a good tree. They cannot be. You say, well, I'm a little, I, I'm, I'm tracking with you, but I, I want to make sure I understand. Is it about the Jews or is it about the reprobates? Go to 2 Peter, if you would, chapter 2. If you get your place in Hebrews, or if you have your place in Hebrews, after Hebrews, you have James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. Is it about the Jews or is it about the reprobates? And here's the answer to the question. It's both. Here's what I believe is happening here in Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6 is the Jews and the rejection of the Jews being used as an example of the reprobates, the rejection of the reprobates, or vice versa, the rejection of the reprobates being used to explain the rejection of the Jews. And, and let me just say it this way. And this is why context is key. 
If you remember when we started the book of Hebrews, we talked about the fact that I believe that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. And I went through a whole list of why I believe that, and I, I think everyone that pretty much agrees with that, anyone that matters at least. <laughs> and I'm sorry if you don't believe <laughs> I don't. I'm not talking about you. I don't know that. The book of Hebrews was written anonymously, though. Because if you remember, who had the most to gain with the book of Hebrews being published? Wouldn't you say it's the Apostle Paul? What was the major fight of the first century? Of course, the persecution came from unbelieving Jews. But what was the major fight in the first century? When you're reading nine chapters a day this month, and you get to the book of Acts, I want you to notice this. I want you to notice that there's all these issues within believers, within the believing community of the Jews and the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 6, the Greeks and the, and the Jews are arguing about their women, the women, the widows not being taken care of. In Acts chapter 15, Pharisees who believed are trying to make Gentile believers follow the Mosaic law. And they have to have this big Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. When Paul comes back to Jerusalem, James, who's saved, James, who's the brother of Jesus, James is telling Paul, that there's thousands of Jews that believe, but follow the Mosaic law. In the first century, there was all these individuals in these, in these local churches who were Jewish, Judaized individuals raised in the Jews' religion who had gotten saved, and they were having trouble leaving it. And Paul was not their... He, they were not fans of Paul. Why were they not fans of Paul? Well, we just went through the book of Galatians. He comes at them really hard. Galatians, Ephesians, he's coming at them really hard and fighting against them. And what I believe we see in the book of Hebrews is Paul writing anonymously in the nicest possible way, trying to help these Jewish first century believers understand they don't have to keep the Mosaic law. Jesus is better. They need to transition out of the Old Testament law. They need to transition into the New Testament. And in Hebrews 6, or let me say this, in Hebrews 5 and in Hebrews 7, he's brought up Melchizedek, who Jesus is the high priest of the order of Melchizedek. And he knows, and he's going to bring it up later in the book, we're going to see it. That their argument to him is going to be, well, wait a minute, how can Jesus be a high priest if he was of the tribe of Judah and the priesthood comes from Aaron and the tribe of Levi? And the answer to the question is this, the Jews have been replaced. The Levitical priesthood has been done away with. There is no Levitical priesthood. There is no priest of the sons of Aaron. That's how Jesus can be the high priest of the order of Melchizedek. That's how you and I, when the Bible says that we are kings and priests unto God and our Father, we're not Levitical priests. We're of the order of Melchizedek. But they're not ready to hear that. This is difficult for them. They've grown up as Jews their entire life, and it's hard for them to understand that the Old Testament has been done away with. The nation of Israel has been rejected. So what is the writer of Hebrews, what does he do? He says, let me talk to you about something that you don't have an issue understanding. Let me talk to you about reprobates. And let me talk to you about how someone can cross a line with God and be rejected. Here's what he's doing. He's getting them to nod their heads 
He's getting them to agree. He's getting them to say, yeah, yeah, I understand. I understand how somebody can come close to, be exposed to, understand things and not get saved and then lose their ability. I can understand that. And he's using that as an example to say, well, that's what happened to the Jews. Thorns and briars. Look, that's the only way any of this makes sense. What does any of this have to do with Melchizedek? Now you say, well, I, you know, I don't know. He, he's using reprobates to explain the Jews. Now here's the, here's the thing. I did the opposite. Because we're not first century Jewish believers. We're 21st century Gentile believers. So the big debate with this passage is, is they're talking about reprobates. So I started with something we can all agree on. The Jews. And I showed you how, look, it's about the Jews. The Jews have been rejected. The Jews have been rejected. The Jews have been rejected. And doing what the writer of Hebrews is doing and the opposite saying, in the same way that the Jews were rejected, there are individuals that can be rejected. Now, hold on a second. Look, look at this. Go to 2 Peter 2, but I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4. Because verse 4 is the controversial part. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened... And have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted of the good word of God, and of the powers of the world to come. It is impossible for those individuals, verse 6, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh, to put him in an open shame. And people look at this, these statements and they say well how can this be about reprobates this has to be somebody who's saved but wait a minute think about the jews doesn't all of that apply to the jews they were once enlightened they tasted of the heavenly gift they were made partakers of the holy ghost they have tasted of the good word of god and the powers of the world to come they were given the oracles of god the glory of god descended upon the tabernacle and the temple they were given the priest. Look, they were enlightened. They tasted of the heavenly gift. They were partakers of the Holy Ghost. All that, if you look at it and you say, can that apply to the Jews? And the answer is yes. And the Jews, have they been rejected? And the answer is yes. Then that should help you realize that they can also be applied to an individual. Because that's what people struggle with. Now, this is done throughout the Bible. Throughout the Bible, God will use groups of people to help us understand the reprobate doctrine. That's what the writer of Hebrews is doing in Hebrews chapter 6. Let me just, to prove the point, show you how this is done elsewhere in the Bible. Go to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. You're saying is it, it's about the Jews being rejected, and that's used as an illustration to help us understand the reprobates. Yes. Or about the reprobates being rejected, and that helps us understand the Jews. The answer is yes, because the way that he words it is so ambiguous, it can apply to both groups, vice versa. I believe that he's teaching them about the reprobate doctrine, moving them along, getting them to agree, getting them to nod their heads, yes, yes, we understand, we understand. What does that have to do with us? Thorns and briars? Oh. Isaiah 5? Yeah. Oh, I see what you're saying. Now, God using groups to help us understand reprobates, is that done in Scripture? Well, let me give you some examples. 2 Peter 2, look at verse 4. For if God, look at this, spared not the angels that sinned. Now, the fallen angels, are they reprobates? Well, kind of. They've been rejected. 
They can't be renewed unto repentance. They're not human beings that came to the point where they rejected Christ or they uh, chose to go down the reprobate road. But notice here in 2 Peter, by the way, 2 Peter chapter 2 and the book of Jude is all about reprobates. And he's using a group, the fallen angels, to help us understand reprobates. For if God spared not the angels that sin, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved into judgment, he says, look, you want to understand the reprobate doctrine? Here's an illustration to help you understand it. How about the fallen angels? They cross the line and they cannot be renewed unto repentance. They are reserved unto judgment. And God spared not the angels. That's a group representing, symbolically helping us, illustrating the reprobate doctrine. You want another example? Look at verse 5. And spared not the old world. Talking about the world that was killed in the flood, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And you ask the question, are you saying that those, all those people that died in the flood, that they were reprobates? Uh, kind of. God gave up on them. He killed them all. Their opportunities were done. When he closed the door on the ark, he saved Noah, and the rest were rejected. He's using them as an example of a reprobate. Here's another group, verse 7. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, does God, do, do homosexuals today get reprobated and destroyed all in one city? You know, San Francisco maybe, hopefully one day. But is this, this isn't common, but he's using this as an example. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, that's queers, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. He's using groups to help us understand how an individual can become a reprobate. He says, in the same way that God spared not the angels, in the same way that God spared not the old world, in the same way that God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, that can happen to an individual. Hebrews is telling us, in the same way that the nation of Israel uh, was once enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift and, and, and was partakers of the Holy Ghost and had all those things that's true of them, and yet they were rejected, that can happen to an individual. Still not convinced? Let me give you another example. Go to Jude. Verse 6. One chapter in Jude, verse 6. Right before the book of Revelation. Jude 1, chapter 1, only chapter, verse 6. Jude is all about reprobates as well. Notice what it says. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitations, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth as an example of suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Look, he's wanting to teach them about replacement theology. But he says, this is difficult. What's so difficult? Have you asked yourself, what's so difficult about Melchizedek? Well, nothing for you. You're not a first century Jew that grew up in Judaism. That is being taught something and your whole world's being flipped upside down. But to them, he says, I have some things I need to explain to you about Melchizedek, of whom we have many things to say, but you're not ready to hear it yet. He said, I'm going to have to go on this little rabbit's trail and explain some things to you before you can understand that Jesus is a high priest of the order of Melchizedek because I know you're going to ask me what about Levi and you need to understand that Levi's done. Levi's gone. 
Levi's rejected. The Levitical priesthood is done away with. But you're not ready to hear that. So let me tell you, tell you about the reprobates in Rome and the reprobates in Greece because you'll nod your head at that. You'll understand that. You'll, you'll agree with that. And then when I tell you, yeah, and that's what happened to the Jews, you'll have your lesson. Go back, go back to Hebrews chapter 6. Keep your place in 2 Peter. We're going to come back to it. Look, I, I skipped the prayer time, and I made the song leader sing only two stanzas to give myself some extra time, all right? So we're still doing good on time, but I'm probably going to go over, you know, whatever. I'm not charging you overtime. It's, you're getting a good deal. Hebrews 6. Let's talk about these really controversial phrases. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. Look, enlightened simply means illuminated. It means to see something clearly. If you're a soul winner and you're a good soul winner, you've seen this where the light bulb just goes off. Where you're talking to someone, you're making the points, you're making the applications, you're doing the illustration, and it's just like, ah, oh, like I get it. Who was once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift. Now here's the thing, I'm not going to sit here and argue with you about these phrases, because I can show you a verse where Jesus tasted of vinegar and would not drink it. And then you can show me a verse where the Bible says that Jesus tasted of death. And we can argue back and forth. But, but here's the thing, the word taste simply means to experience something. When it says that he tasted of death for all men, it doesn't mean that he like received death like we receive salvation. It means that he experienced death. And these people, I do not believe, got saved, but I do think they experienced the heavenly gift. They got it. Now, they rejected it. But if I offer you a gift and I say, here, this gift is for you, even if you reject it, couldn't you say that you experienced me giving you a gift? So it says that they tasted the heavenly gift. They were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. I can show you unsaved Caiaphas having the Holy Spirit come upon him. I can show you John 16, 8, where it says, where Jesus says that the Holy Ghost will reprove the world of sin and that the Holy Ghost has a ministry even in the unsaved, which is why we pray before we go soul winning. Every Saturday before we go soul winning, I pray that the Lord, that the Lord will send the Holy Spirit before us to prepare the hearts of the people that we'll be speaking to, Amen. that he'd begin to work on their hearts even now. Because the Holy Ghost though he doesn't indwell them and doesn't seal them, there is a ministry even to the unsaved of the Holy Ghost. Jesus said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. And the one that's doing that drawing is the Holy Spirit of God. Amen. We talked about it uh, with the Christmas sermon uh, about the wise men, that God is doing a work on the other side, on the other side of the door, on the other side of soul winning, on the other side of you and I fulfilling our duty of the Great Commission. God is doing a work with the Holy Spirit where He's moving in the hearts of men and He's preparing their hearts and He's changing the circumstances around and He's bringing them to the place where they would be willing and ready to hear the gospel. Isn't that what we pray? Tasted of the heavenly gifts and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have, made, and have tasted of the good word of God. The Bible says taste and see that the Lord is good. That just means that they read the Bible and they understood it. How did they understand it? Because they were enlightened by the Holy Spirit. But wait, but they weren't saved. Because unsaved people cannot discern the scriptures. But they can when a soul winner that has the Holy Spirit of God explains to them the scriptures and opens up the scriptures unto them. 
So they were enlightened, they, they, they tasted of the good word of God and of the powers of the world to come. They understood eternal judgment. They understood heaven and hell and the fact that there's consequence for sin. And look, we can go and go to all these passages, but here's the whole point, and here's just the answer that I want to explain to you, is that all these phrases, once enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift, made partakers of the Holy Ghost, tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. All this is simply stating that they knew, they understood, a soul winner explained it, they saw it from the Bible, the Holy Spirit illuminated it, they understood it, and they rejected it. That's it. And, and you say, well, I struggle with that, but isn't all that, isn't all that true of the Jews? They were once enlightened. They tasted of the heavenly gift. They were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. They tasted with the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. And they got rejected. Go to 2 Peter chapter 2. Let me show you this about reprobates. 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 20. 2 Peter 2 and verse 20. 2 Peter 2, 20 is about reprobates. You can study it in the context. We already saw verses from there. They showed that, but look at verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, we're talking about reprobates. Notice these words. Through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. These people had knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means they were once enlightened. By the way, they were once enlightened, past tense and tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. For if after they have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and, uh, 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 knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome the latter end. Notice the latter end is worse with them than the beginning, verse 21, for it had been better for them. Does that remind you of Judas Iscariot? Who's also a reprobate. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. So they knew the way of righteousness. What does that mean? It means they were once enlightened. They tasted of the heavenly gift. They were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. They tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. It means that somebody explained it to them and showed them from the Bible. And the Holy Spirit enlightened it and it clicked. They got it. For it would have been better. He says, for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. Then, after they have known it, is there any doubt that these people knew it? Then after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandments delivered unto them. They knew it, but they rejected it. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog, which represents a homosexual in the Bible, is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow, which represents a Jew, I think, that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Romans 1, the the most important passage in the Bible about the reprobate doctrine says in verse 21, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. So look, don't let this mess you up. They were enlightened, yeah. They tasted of the heavenly gift, right. They were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, sure. And have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, yeah, they had the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And for them not to have known the way of righteousness would have been better than after they knew it to reject it. Because they knew God and they glorified Him not as God. And here's the point, Hebrews 6, here's the point. 
He's trying to, he's trying to help them with something that is hard for them to understand, which is the Jews being rejected. He uses the reprobate doctrine to help them understand that. You maybe are struggling with the reprobate doctrine, so let me help you with the Jews being rejected and help you understand that in the same way that the Jews were rejected of God, an individual can become rejected of God. Now, please don't misunderstand this. We're not saying that every Jew is a reprobate. Obviously, the Bible doesn't teach that. But the nation as a whole, them as the people of God, that's done away with. That's been rejected. And today, Jews can get saved, but they have to individually come to Christ and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ just like anyone else. Go back to Hebrews chapter 6. We started with the context. Let me end with the context, and we'll be done here in like two minutes. I said regarding the concepts, Hebrews 6 is about the Jews. Hebrews 6 is about the reprobates. It's the Jews illustrating the reprobates and the reprobates illustrating the Jews. This is done all throughout the Bible. The old world represented a reprobate. Sodom and Gomorrah represented reprobates. The fallen angels represented reprobates. And the, the nation of Israel represents reprobates. Because all of these, here's what they all have in common. They've all been rejected. And the difficult passages, in my opinion, are purposely ambiguous so that they can be applied to both Jews and reprobates. And they're simply just saying that these individuals had the knowledge. They knew God and they glorified Him not as God. Here's my last statement. We'll, be, we'll finish up. Hebrews 6. And I think this is the most important part of this whole message, this whole sermon. If you, if you didn't get anything or you're just like, I really don't care, just get this. Understand this. Context is key. And nothing else, in my, I mean, in my humble opinion, nothing else makes sense. Because what does the reprobate doctrine, and this is the argument, right? The reason that people say, no, it's got to be something else. Because they'll say, what does the reprobate doctrine have anything to do with Melchizedek? You're right. It doesn't. But what does blessings and cursings have anything to do with Melchizedek? It doesn't. But when you understand that he's bringing up the reprobate doctrine because he's really trying to get them to understand that the Jews have been rejected, that has everything to do with Melchizedek. Because them understanding that the Jews have been rejected is key to understanding there is no Levitical priesthood, there is no high priest of the order of Aaron, and we need to get on the high priest of the order of Melchizedek. And this is why the passage begins and ends with Melchizedek. It is one big rabbit's trail. One big break that he takes. He says, I want to talk to you about Melchizedek, but I have some things I need to explain to you first. And then notice how he gets back to Melchizedek. Look at verse 9. We'll just read this context. I'm going to preach probably through this next week, but I just want you to see it. Hebrews 6, verse 9. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. You're different than that group. Why are you different than that group? And things that accompany salvation, because you're saved. Though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of the hope uh, unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers. You say, well, what, what's all that about? That's all about the things that accompany salvation. He just said it. Look, God did not save you to sit there. He saved you to serve. He said, Work and labor of love, minister to the saints, and do minister, be not slothful, but followers. That all has to do with the fact that he said, we're persuaded better things of you because you're saved, but not just because you're saved, and things that accompany salvation. But then notice how he gets back, notice how he gets back to his point, verse 12. 
that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Key word, promises. For when God made promise to Abraham. Why does he just randomly bring up Abraham? Notice what he says. For when God made promises to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, notice this quote, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. That is a quote of the Abrahamic covenant. Why is he bringing up the Abrahamic covenant? Here's why. Because he just got done telling them the Jews have been rejected. But please understand this. The Abrahamic covenant still stands. Because the Abrahamic covenant, the Jews being replaced, doesn't affect the Abrahamic covenant. We learned that in Galatians. Because the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled in Christ. Saying, surely, blessings I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them uh, an end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, he's talking about people that are saved, like faithful Abraham, to show unto the heirs of promise the, notice this word, immutability of his counsel. Immutability means the unchanging of his counsel. Why is he saying these things? He's not just bringing it up because he wants to say fancy words. He's saying, look, I don't want you to think that God rejecting the Jews is somehow God changing his mind. God made a promise to Abraham and to show unto the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed by an oath with two immutable, unchanging things in which it was impossible for God to lie. We might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth not into, uh, into that within the veil. Verse 20, whither the forerunner is for us, entered, even Jesus made, notice how he gets back to his, uh, his, the context, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Amen. And then, just real quickly, chapter 7 and verse 1, because there is no chapter 7 and verse 1 in the original writing. For Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, said, let me tell you something about Melchizedek, Melchizedek who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. He goes in, he starts in chapter 7. We'll get to it in a few weeks. He starts in chapter 7. He said, let me tell you a story about Melchizedek. Melchizedek met Abraham. Melchizedek was before Abraham. Levi was in the loins of Abraham. So God getting rid of the Levitical priesthood is not changing the immutability of God. Melchizedek was before Abraham because Melchizedek is greater than Abraham because that's the theme of Hebrews. Jesus is greater. And here's what we're getting. We're getting to this point. The high priest order of Melchizedek is better than the high priest order of Aaron. So why didn't you say that to begin with? Well, because you don't struggle with that. But first century Jews would. They would not be able to understand that. They would not be ready to hear that. They would be dull of hearing. It would be difficult for them to understand. And the writer of Hebrews, trying to be very kind, says, let me explain something to you. Do you know how a reprobate can come to the place where they knew, they understood, they got it, it clicked, but they rejected it? They produced thorns and briars, and they were rejected? 
Yeah, we get that. Well, that's what happened to the nation of Israel. That's how we get it to Melchizedek. That's the only thing that makes sense. And I think if you just look at it, it's clear. Let's bow our heads in our word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the Bible. And Lord, I ask that you'd help us to just understand Scripture. And Lord, help us not to use these passages to try to fight with our brothers and sisters in Christ. People can have different opinions and different thoughts, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as we're not teaching heresy or teaching damnable heresies, then there's no need to argue with other friends. And people can have their own thoughts. But Lord, I pray that you would just help us to study the Bible and to be convinced of ourselves of what is being said here. And help us to see that things are not just brought up randomly in chapters just for no apparent reason. The context is key to telling us what is being said here and what is the purpose of this passage. Thank you for giving us the scriptures. Thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to have uh, Brother Moses come up and lead us in a final song. Just want to remind you a couple of things. First of all, uh, don't forget that uh, we've got the work days uh, this weekend.